If you have your Bible open there to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, look at verse number 9. I'm going to read that verse, and, and what I say is going to revolve mostly around this verse. The Bible says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Do you have a desire for the Lord to show himself strong on your behalf? Do you want to be able to go to God in prayer and see the Lord work? Two simple questions this evening, and I'll tell you what they both are right off the bat. Number one, is your heart perfect toward God? Number two, how are you relying on him? Is your heart perfect toward God? And then number two, how are you relying on him? Now, that first question, is your heart perfect toward God? That might sound like something that we cannot do, but we can have a perfect heart toward God. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. We know that David, the Bible says that David's heart was perfect towards the Lord. Uh, the man about whom this, this chapter is, is talking is a man by the name of Asa, and twice in Scripture, the Bible says his heart was perfect toward the Lord. Hezekiah, his heart was perfect toward the Lord. Let me quickly give you... I'll give you what I think the Bible teaches on how to have a perfect heart, okay? Because if we want the Lord to show himself strong on our behalf, do you recognize from that passage of Scripture that he is looking, his eyes are running to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for a man whose heart is perfect toward him so he can show himself strong on his behalf? So having a perfect heart is what we need if we want our prayers to get the Lord involved, okay? I believe having a perfect heart toward God is doing what God wants you to do with a good attitude. It's not being perfect. It's not being sinless. It is working diligently to do what God wants you to do with a good attitude. You know, there's a passage in Psalm 37 that talks about how we can get our desires from the Lord, right? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart, right? Okay, I believe in that little passage right there, it teaches us, that having a perfect heart toward God, getting our prayers answered, is doing what's right with a good attitude. Because that verse before, delight thyself also in the Lord, Psalm 37, 3 and 4 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So trust in the Lord and do good, right? You have to do what's right. Trust in the Lord and do good. And then how about your attitude? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Again, is your heart perfect toward God? Do you do what God wants you to do with a good attitude? I think the New Testament, God says it this way. In the book of James, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, gives us a definition of the love of God. Sounds like having your heart perfect towards God. For this is the love of God. Now look, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but probably whatever comes next is going to talk about the love of God, right? For this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Doing what God wants me to do with a good attitude. Doing what God wants me to do, and it's not grievous, it's not a burden to me, with some enthusiasm. But my son Joe, who is now married, but when my son Joe just started sitting in church, he was about four years of age, 
and he had learned the rhythm of church. You know, he sat in church long enough to know that we're going to stand and sing for a while, and then there's going to be a choir special, and then there's going to be, you know, an announcement or two, and then there's going to be a special, then some Bible reading, and then preaching, and then we're going to sing a song, and you know what's next, right? We go home, okay? And he'd been in church long enough to know that's the order of things. Well, this particular evening service, the preacher that night decided after all the opening things, and then he started preaching about three minutes into the sermon, he decided to have us sing a song. Well, you know what happens after the sermon and after we sing a song, right? You know what's supposed to happen. And, boy, we sang that song, and Joe looked up at me and with, with just such joy in his voice said, is it over? And, you know, it wasn't that it was so loud, although it was. It was very loud. It, it was embarrassing because of the enthusiasm in his voice. Like, I'm free! You know, is it over? You know, sometimes, if we're honest, we may look at the things of God like, boy, this is a drudgery, you know? Or we might not bring that, that same enthusiasm that Joe had that night to just doing what God wants me to do, wants us to do. Number one, is your heart perfect toward God? If we want God to show himself strong on our behalf, like this verse says, and by the way, he is not passive about it. He is actively looking for people whose heart is perfect toward him so that he could show himself strong Amen. on our behalf. And he, and he wasn't just doing that in the, the day of King Asa here. He is doing that today. And he is not a respecter of persons because Asa is a king, and I'm not. He's looking for any man whose heart is perfect toward him. Number two, how do you rely upon God? How do you rely upon God? You know, I believe for years I misunderstood that passage of Scripture because it ends with saying, thou hast done foolishly, right? The passage that we read, you know, God's looking for that man with a perfect heart. And then it, it said to King Asa, thou hast done foolishly. And, you know, I just thought that that foolish thing that Asa had done was he had lived his life without a perfect heart. But I was wrong. That's not right. It, sa it says in 2 Kings, it says again in this chapter, that Asa's heart was perfect towards God. So Asa's foolishness was not in that his heart wasn't perfect towards God. Then, then what was it? He had done the work of having a perfect heart towards God. He had done what God had asked him to do with enthusiasm. And if you know anything about Asa, it was with enthusiasm that he followed God. The foolish part was that he didn't rely upon God. You know, our church is filled with people that I respect, with, with, with the utmost respect. And I believe there are people in this room, many people in this room, who could say, you know, I try to do what God wants me to do. And it's not a burden. I know it's midweek service, and you know it's, it's on a Tuesday night. You're here, right? And I don't think it's a drudgery for you to be here. Okay, so you have that perfect heart. We have a perfect heart toward God. Let's not behave foolishly. How are we relying upon God? See, if you back up a little bit and you look at verse 7, it says, And at the time Hanani the seer came to Asa the king of Judah and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Look at verse 8. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubans 
a huge host with many chariots and horsemen. Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly. How did he, what did he do foolishly? He had a perfect heart, and yet he didn't rely on God. Let me ask that second question again. How are you relying on God? You know, we read that passage from Luke. And just a week ago, Brother Judah brought a, a sermon uh, to our high schoolers from that passage of Scripture where it says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Right? We just read it. And his question to our high school students was, What is your it? What are you asking for? Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Well, may I ask you, what is your it? What are you relying upon God to do? So your heart is perfect toward God. How are you relying upon God? You know that huge host we read about where God says, hey, Asa, you had a huge host. The the Ethiopians, that huge host we find was a million soldiers. The Bible says a thousand thousand soldiers were camped outside of the palace. You know what? Asa went to God. God delivered him. If you still have your Bible there, look at uh, 2 Chronicles, look at chapter number 12. Chapter six, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 12. Same chapter, look at verse 12. And Asa, this good man of God, the king, in the 30 and ninth year of his reign was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his diseases he sought not to the Lord, but to the physician. This great man whose heart was perfect toward God had a million soldiers camped outside the castle. And he went to God. God delivered him. But ironically, God wanted to do something about Asa's foot problem, right? His foot problem. And Asa didn't go to God. Asa went to the physicians. You know, I don't think God's against doctors. But you go to God first. You go to God first. You rely upon God. And I don't know, everyone in here has something that we can rely upon God for, and I don't know what what yours is. It may be something like a million soldiers outside your door. It may be a huge problem, or your problem might be an ingrown toenail, okay? It might be a foot problem, like Asa's was. Are you going to God? How are you relying upon God? What are you going to God for? What are you asking for? What is your it? I would love for the Lord to show himself strong on my behalf. Would you? Is your heart perfect toward him? Are you doing what God wants you to do with a good attitude? Okay, if it is, then how are you relying upon God? Let's not live foolishly. How are you relying upon the Lord? We'll be in Habakkuk chapter number three, and I'll just read three verses for you. The last three verses in the chapter there. And, uh, and then we'll walk through what the Bible uh, has to say here. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. The Bible says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit uh, be in the vines, the labor of the olives shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer 
my string instruments. Lord, I sure do need your help at this moment. And uh, Lord, uh, 200 and some odd uh, passages that mention the word praise, I decided to go to this one <laughs> and uh, to demonstrate what praise looks like. I pray, God, that you'd help us now use this time, make it be profitable for your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. and amen. I've been given the task to go edit on this subject of praise. And uh, when I think of praise, uh, automatically my mind wants to go to several psalms, uh, Psalm 34, several psalms that you could talk about as it relates to praise, several uh, passages of scripture I wanted to go to. I believe it was Luke where uh, Jesus was coming in on his triumphal entry and they were praising him and somebody got upset and Jesus told him if they refused to praise me, then the rocks would cry out. Uh, but for some reason, uh, God was pushing me to get over here to Habakkuk. And uh, Pastor Wilkinson taught on this book. It's, I know it's real pristine in our Bibles, but Pastor Wilkinson actually taught on this uh, maybe a year and a half ago, somewhere around there. And he walked through it. It's a short book. Uh, but this is about a prophet. We call him a minor prophet, but he's got a major message. Amen. And he's having a conversation in chapter 1 and chapter number 2 with God. And uh, it's almost as if he's having an argumentative conversation with God. He's a little upset with God because in the text that we're reading here uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, God seems to be not listening to him. God seems to not be responding to him. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like God is just not listening to you? Have you ever been in a situation, some of us in this room or outside of this room right now, they went into the doctor and they've eaten healthy and they've taken care of themselves, but the doctor came back and said, I'm sorry, you have cancer. Some of us have been on dates and uh, we've taken people out and we thought that the person of our dreams was going to be that person. And then we ask God for clarity and God says, wrong person, not now. Some of us. I saw, this is a vast room, and so we have a conglomerate of people here, all types of nationalities, all stripes of life, and so we're going to hit everybody today if we can. Some of us have prayed for one of our loved ones to be healed, and we had to stand at their casket. Some of us have prayed, and we've asked God to put us in a position of leadership, and we've watched other people who were less qualified than we were be put promoted and put up in a position of leadership where we thought they shouldn't have. And we say, God, I, I did everything that was necessary for me to do in order to be in that position. And it seems like God is quiet. Watch this. This hits home really quick, real, real close here. Some of us, most of us in this room, have been faithful to the Lord. We've walked with the Lord. And we've done things. We've had our heart <laughs> near toward God. And we ask God for something, and sometimes God just simply says, no. Boy, it makes you cringe, doesn't it? Habakkuk is dealing with this situation here in our text. But he shows us something extremely strange here. He shows us that God can say no to us, or God can be silent for a while to us, and yet we can still praise God. He shows us that God doesn't have to necessarily answer every prayer that I ask the way that I want him to ask it, yet he still do <laughs> all the praise and all the honor and all of the glory. Prayerfully, you caught uh, the gist of my introduction, and it's simply this. If I can crunch it down and put it into one sentence, it would be simply this. Life does not always go the way that we want it to. 
Life is not always uh, constructed the way that we see things in our mind. And Habakkuk shows us by demonstration how we can embrace what God has given us and still praise him. I use the word embrace on purpose because if you look up Habakkuk's name, his name means to embrace. (laughs) He's in a rough situation. His nation, Judah, they are wicked, they are evil, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And so he's praying and he's saying, God, do something about this. And then God (laughs) tells him the answer that I'm going to send the Babylonians to take over. And he's like, hold up now, God, I'm asking you to answer this prayer, but the answer that you're giving me is not the one that I want. And he has to embrace what God gives him regardless to whether he wants to embrace it or not. Now, he can either embrace it and be upset or he can embrace it and praise. And he shows us the latter. He reminds me of Jonah. You know, Jonah told God, God told Jonah to do something. And God, Jonah went the opposite way. Habakkuk went toward God. This evening, I want to show us how we can go toward God even when God is not answering the way that we think he should. He initiates this conversation with God about distress. I hope I'm praying I don't go over. I only have one page of notes, so pastor, you're going to have to reel me in here, okay? (laughs) God fixed the problem, and God says, I'm going to fix it this way. He doesn't like the solution that God comes up with. And uh, let me read this. I got a thought here. I have the ability. God says to him, I have the ability to fix something going on in your outside world. Uh, But I'm actually going to use what's on your outside to bring you closer to me from the inside. (laughs) Y'all ain't getting it yet. I'll help. Let me finish arguing what I'm talking about then. Here's the question of our text here. How in the world can I be positive when everything around me is negative? How in the world can I see what God wants me to see when everybody around me or everything around me seems to be uh, calamitous? God helps us here in verse number 17. He says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the, fruit, the, the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls, yet. Y'all didn't get it. See, I thought y'all went to... Uh, back over here to the mic. Lord have mercy. They didn't get it on this side, so I'm going to talk to this side. I got to rewind this and start from the top. Habakkuk says, although, listen to me carefully, he says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall not be be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herds in the stall, yet. Okay, they got it on this side. This side is still deathly silent. I don't know what happened over here. Let me start it. Rewind it one more time, Pastor. I hope I got one more minute. Let me rewind it one more time and try it again. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no uh, herds in the stall yet. Okay, when I was a little kid, it was this little cartoon show that came on. And they had this thing called a a, a conjunction. And there was a little jingle that they had that went with it. It went something like conjunction, junction. See if y'all can finish it. Y'all got it. What we have here in our text is a contrasting conjunction. In other words, when he says yet, he's saying that whatever I just said, on the other side of what I just said is something far greater. 
He's saying there is negative on this side. Remember, the olives are not going to work. The fig tree is going to fail. It's not going to blossom. There's the sheep and the flocks are not going to be in the stalls. Yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I don't have time to really break this down. I like to take every word and break it apart and put it back together so we can see it clearly. I don't have time for it, but I want to point out two things at least and then go take my seat. He says, yet I will rejoice. Pastor, did you notice that he did not say, I feel rejoice? His circumstance was negative. But he says, I've made a determination inside of my heart that regardless to what my outside looks like, I'm going to praise God anyway. Amen. I will rejoice. You see, this is grown up Christianity here. <laughs> Being able to praise God when everything's not going good. He says, I will Rejoice. I'm not going to give you the word rejoice or the word joy. Both of them have something to do with an action. It's really not just a sound. It's an action. How about leaping up? <laughs> Spinning around us with those two words mean just in your Strong's Concordance. Go look it up when you're done. He says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Here's my thought. I want to give it to you, and I'm done. The potency of a Christian's praise is most powerful when it comes from a place of extreme distress. Your praise is most powerful when you've learned to praise God anyhow. When you learn to take a licking and keep on ticking. That's when your praise works best. I'm done. wasn't expecting this. I was in the deer stand Saturday night, 4.20, and if you know what time that is, that's when the deer come out. My phone rang. It was him. And uh, he asked me to do uh, this on Thanksgiving tonight and asked to share my testimony. My testimony is way longer than 10 minutes, and I don't know how I'm going to do that. It's 8.08. We'll give it a try. Thanksgiving, I want to give you just a definition that I read out of the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. The act of rendering thanks or expressing gratitude for favors or mercies. Giving thanks. I did a little figuring. I've been saved now. I got saved on February 19th, 1984. And uh, I didn't come from a church background. I was 23 years old when I got saved. I'm really not proud of the way I lived for the first 23 years of my life. I lived for the devil, for hell. I was a party animal. I was a drinker. I was a drugger. I had children out of wedlock, my first child out of wedlock. lived with my, now my wife, Lisa. But for 30, almost 39 years now, I've been saved. I haven't drank one drop of alcohol in 39 years. And for people that say it's hard and I can't do it, <laughs> that's what I say. If I can do it, anyone can do it. I haven't smoked one cigarette in 39 years. 
I haven't taken one puff of marijuana or any pills or any drugs in 39 years because of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you one, I want to tell you one reason I think that is before I get started. I kind of figured it up. It looks to me like today, and I probably could be off a little bit, I think I'm close though, that I've been 14,147 days saved. 14,147 days saved. Now I don't know that I've spent every day of that 14,147 days thanking God that I got saved, but I think that I could safely say that 13,000 of those days, every day, Amen. I've thought about what God saved me from and thanked Him for saving me. Amen. I don't know when you got saved. I'm not sure. Some of you have been saved two weeks. Start now. Get up tomorrow morning and say, God, thank you for saving me. I don't have to go to hell. And not only did he save me from going to hell, he saved my life and changed my entire life to up until this point. My wife, I'm going to tell you a quick story, and I'll get into my uh, testimony. My wife was with our grandson, Bryce. He lives with our oldest daughter, Jennifer. She lives down in Arkansas. And Bryce is eight years old. And Bryce, she was just down there a couple weeks ago, and Bryce said, Grammy, when did you get saved? And my wife said, Bryce, I got saved when I was 21 years old. And he goes, Grammy, I got saved when I was seven. Why did it take you to 21 years old? And, uh, of course, you can't explain that, but my wife said something. She said, Bryce, the reason you're saved is because I got saved when I was 21 years old. You understand that? My mom got saved because I got saved 39 years ago. Do you understand that my brothers, one of them that's in heaven uh, right now, he, got, he, he died when he was 31 years old. My one brother is in heaven because he got saved when I got saved 39 years ago. Because I got saved 39 years ago, that little lady that I've spent my life with, Lisa, she got saved two weeks after I got saved. Do you understand 39 years ago because I got saved, my other brother got saved, and my mom got saved, and my grandma got saved, and my grandfather got saved, and a lot of my friends got saved. I'm telling you, because I, I'm a soul winner, and I hope you're a soul winner. I'm not a great soul winner. I don't claim to be a great soul winner, but I've been a soul winner for 39 years, and the reason I think that I've been a soul winner for 39 years is because almost on a daily basis, and I know I've missed some, I've thanked God. I've thanked God that he saved a wretch like me. I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was a mess. My dad and mom split up when I was 10 years old. My dad was a drunk. My dad died when he was 40 years old. 40. 40 years old, he drank himself to death. I was at work one day, and my mom, their phone rang and said, Greg, it's a phone call for you over the intercom, and I never got phone calls. And I knew, I knew what had happened. My mom answered the phone, and she said, Greg, your dad just passed away. And I love my dad, even though he was a drunk. He treated my mother terribly, but I still love my dad. She said, your dad just passed away. That was 16. 
Of course, I was already on a downhill spiral because mom and dad divorced. And I was into everything. But I just went deeper. It hurt. But I got into drugs. I got into the wrong crowd. Got into alcohol. And got into doing wrong. All kinds of wrong. And I met Lisa. She called me on the phone. Many of you have heard this testimony. I was at home one night. And I was at home in my couch. And I'm not... I'm not bragging about it. I was drinking, doing what I always did. And my phone rang, and the phone said, where are you? The first thing she said is, where are you? And I said, what do you mean, where am I? I'm home here on my couch. Who is this? And she said, this is Lisa. You're late for the date. And I said, what date? And I never heard this voice in my life. And she said, you're late for our date tonight. You're supposed to take me on a date to the fireworks. This was around July. And uh, I said, I don't remember taking any, calling, making a date for anybody. And she said, boy, you must have really been drunk at that party last, uh, at your house last night. And I did have a party. It so happened. She's making all of this up, every bit of it. And, uh, I, and I did have a party. And I was, and I'm not proud of it, but I was drunk. That's what I did. And she said, well, what do you want to do? You want to go out tonight? And that's how I met that lady. We went out, we went out drinking. I met that lady. And we spent the next three years. Drinking, drugging, and in trouble, a wreck. And one Sunday morning, or one, I guess it was a Monday, I said, Lisa, we went to a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, every maybe three times a year. And I said, Lisa, you want to go to church next Sunday? And she said, yeah. We didn't know what church was. She said, yeah. And I said, okay, we'll go Sunday. The next night, we went to a party, got into a big brawl, and we didn't talk to each other all week long. All week long. I got up, went to work. She'd cook me dinner. I'd come home. She'd cook me dinner. We'd eat. I'd go to bed, get up, go to work. Didn't say five words to her all week. Sunday came. I got up. She's laying in our bed. And I said, Lisa. And she said, what? I said, are you going to church with me? She said, no. I went to church. I was a broken-hearted young man. I went to church for the first time in my life. I sat right back here in this church. It is a big church. Calvary Temple is a big church. I sat right back here, broken-hearted, and the preacher preached. I don't know what he preached on. I had no idea what he preached on. But Pastor Pano preached, and when he gave the invitation, and I've never felt this before, and I don't think any this really happened, but it felt like somebody grabbed me by the chest and yanked me up out of that chair and pulled me over that aisle and pulled me all the way down this aisle and somebody took the Bible and showed me how to be saved and I put my faith in Christ that day as my Savior. That's the day I got saved. I walked home. I went down. I, I drove home. I, I got into the trailer and our bedroom was clear down at the back end of the trailer. I walked down and I was scared to death. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how she was going to react. And I walked down there. Am I over time? I haven't even been paying attention to the clock. But I walked down the end of that trailer, and my wife, with her back, she was changing Brad. Brad was, I think, about eight or nine months old, and she was changing Brad. And I said, Lisa, and she never turned around. And she said, she said, what? And I had tears streaming down my face. I said, Lisa, I got saved today. And she turned around, and she said, you what? And I said, I got saved today. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, I asked Jesus to save me. And that's how I got saved. And the reason, and God has changed everything about my life, everything. He's put me into the ministry. 
The reason I work here today, the reason I go to church here today, the reason my family sits back there today is because January 19, 1984, God saved a wicked sinner. And I've just been trying to serve him. And I'm thankful.